One of the most basic ways of explaining what a Christian is, is to say that we are those who have received salvation. Yep. We're, the, we're those who are saved. We're the ones who kind of realise that our sin is a big issue, but we've got a loving God who's come in the person of the Son, put on flesh, died in our place to save us from our sins. So one of the most basic descriptions of a Christian is someone who's received salvation. I'm not sure if that's kind of in the forefront of your mind and heart when you think about yourself as a Christian. If you are a Christian, you're someone who has salvation. We're going to look tonight at the concept of, we're going, to, we're going to think into what you do with your salvation. Because it's entirely possible to receive salvation, but then just kind of sit on it. And in a sense, not do much with it. But know that you've got it, appreciate it on some level, but then just kind of go on with your life. As though salvation might just be this little ticket you pop in your back pocket and you know you're going to pull that out on the final day and you're in but it really doesn't affect much what you do here. And I think we can all fall trap to that kind of thinking about salvation. We come to a verse here tonight that tells us that there's something we are to be doing with our salvation. Did you catch it? Have a look at verse 12. Halfway through verse 12, we get one dash and then a little bit further, you get another dash and then you get the word continue. Have you found that? Continue to... Work out your salvation. I'm just going to pause there. Work out your salvation. That's what we're told we ought to be doing, working out our salvation. So that's what we're going to dig into tonight. What does it mean to work out your salvation? Because that's a pretty clear instruction. It's a pretty clear command. Paul's giving it to the Philippians. It's for all Christians. Do you know what it means to work out your salvation? Are you working out your salvation? Salvation's a gift that we're given, but there are different kinds of gifts. It, apparently, it seems like salvation is the kind of gift you need to work out. Now, there's different gifts. There's the kind of gift that you just receive, you pull it out of the box, you plug it in, and it's fully functional instantly. Yep. Like maybe you, you, you buy a new telly. Yep. And you really, literally unwrap it. It's not that hard, is it, to plug it in? I mean, there's a few cables, but really you just plug it in, you turn it on and boom. Really what you've got there is full functionality, pretty instantly. There's that kind of gift that you can get. Plug it in, off we go. And then there's other kinds of gifts that require a little bit more work. And apparently our salvation is, is like a gift that you need to work out and work on or live out. Maybe it's a little bit like a bike. Now, you might not know if you notice there's a bike over here. We're going we're gonna to talk about a bike tonight, and I don't know if this illustration is going to work, and it's okay if it doesn't, but we'll see if it helps, okay? I, I think, you know, salvation is like a gift that's like a bike that comes in a box, maybe, and you've actually got to put it together, which is a scary thing if you've ever had to try and do that, and you need to probably put it together with the help of others, and then once you put it together, you need to learn how to ride the thing. And then you actually need to make sure you keep riding the thing. Yep. I wonder whether a bike is a helpful way of helping us understand, work out your salvation. If it's, no illustration's perfect, there's going to be holes in this one. But let's see how far we can push the bike tonight to help us understand this one. 
It's, it's the kind of present you get that you need to work out. You've got to put it together. You've got to figure out how to use it. Now, some of you have not been doing that with your salvation. Some of you possibly just viewed your salvation like a new TV and you kind of figured you expected it to just work all instantly and you've done very little to work it out. It might even be that your salvation is still a bit boxed up or maybe it's just kind of still in pieces on the floor of your life. Um, and you're kind of wondering why others seem to be kind of progressing in their Christian life and, and, but things don't seem to be working for you so much. Change doesn't seem to be happening like you thought it would. Joy doesn't seem to be bubbling up like apparently it should out of Philippians. And, and it might be because you viewed your salvation like a, just a TV that you just plug in and it's all done and you haven't put in. You haven't been living in your salvation and working out your salvation. And even more so, here's another thing that I think can help us with the bike. Um, you, you'll notice with the bike, actually, let's, let's illustrate it. Um, Let's have a little bit of fun. Can I get one of you guys to jump on the bike? And um, there you go. Figured someone would be up for it. So if you can get on the bike, mate, and um, why don't you just show us how bikes work? This is going to be a really simple illustration. Can you just ride it, like, across the front and across the back, just in case anyone hasn't seen a bike being ridden before? Okay. There you go. Oh, look at that. One-handed. Oh. How's he going to... He's going right around. <laughs> That's good, mate. Can we give him a little bit of a round of applause as he rides his bike around? So what you've got here is someone working out their salvation. Now, as you come around this track, just here, can you slow down a little bit and just keep cruising but stop pedalling? Keep your foot on the... Pe oh, okay. What happens when you stop pedalling? Yeah, the bike stops. Can, can you just kind of keep, can you put your foot on the pedals and just, and just keep it like that? That's good, that's good. Oh, I thought, I thought you were going to prove me wrong there for a bit. <laughs> you see those guys doing that at the lights, don't you? They're doing this weird thing where they're balancing somehow. You ever seen guys doing that? Oh, ladies doing that on their bikes? We've got the illustration. Thanks, Levi. Let's give him some love again. Thanks, mate. <clears throat> Leave it standing there because I'm going to probably keep pointing at it and we'll see how far we can push this illustration throughout tonight. And I'm hoping that possibly, you know, we do these kinds of things so they just help us to remember key verses and how they work and hoping that's what it does for you tonight. Now, you notice it's pretty obvious. If you don't keep pedalling, it doesn't keep going. And I think that can be helpful for us in understanding our salvation. The Christian life is, is, is a life that is to be moving forward. Constantly growing, changing, moving. So I think it's kind of helpful that it's like a bike. When a Christian life, when you stop pedaling in the Christian life, when you stop putting in and working out the Christian life, things slow down and maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you're like, yeah, that's what happened to me. Things plateaued and they pretty much came to a grinding halt and then a whole bunch of things started getting chucked out the window. But if that has, is what's happened for you, can you reflect back on what was going on for you? You know, was, was there a slowing down in the pedalling? Was there less effort being put in on your behalf at actually continuing in your salvation and working at it? 
Now, there's one thing that's really important to clarify as we talk about work and effort that we do in our Christian life, and some of you have gotten a bit worried already, so let's clarify that right up front. You don't work for your salvation. Yep. Salvation is a gift. You know, Ephesians makes that really clear, doesn't it? It's not by works that you receive salvation. Um, It's by faith. It's by trusting in what God has done with his son on the cross that you receive salvation. But we are told here that though we don't work for it to get it, we actually do need to work it out on some level. And that's where we need to dig in and say, what does it mean for me to work out my salvation? Are you working out your salvation? I think Paul actually uses slightly different language, but he talks about this concept all the way through this letter. Let me point out two other times. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 27. And look what he says there. He says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Catch that? Conduct yourselves, in other words, live in such a way that's worthy of the gospel, worthy of the thing that saved you, the news about Jesus that came to you and changed you from the inside out. Live a life that's worthy of that. That's another another different kind of language of of, of saying a similar thing. Have a look at chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 16. It's a classic one, this one. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Look at that one. There's something about salvation. You've already attained it, but now we're called to make sure you live up to what you've already attained. I think this is similar language. Paul is saying a similar thing to what he's saying here. I think he's just pushing the language a little bit further. He's giving it a good old nudge here. In chapter 2, and he says, work out your salvation. Now, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but the concept of salvation gets used in a number of different ways in the Bible, actually. It gets used in a way in regards to the past, the future, and the present. Have you noticed that? Um, Salvation in three ways like this. Sometimes salvation is spoken about as something that's happened in the past for you. You have been saved. That's the concept of justification. You have been saved. Sometimes salvation is spoken of as the thing that's still to happen in the future. One day we will be saved. Yeah, we will be glorified. That's our glorification. And you kind of get a sense of that in chapter 3, verse 20, when it talks about the concept of we are the ones who await a saviour. That we're still waiting, in a sense, for our salvation. Yeah, so it's in the past. It's still waiting for it in the future. And there's something about the present that we're spoken to about our salvation. You get this concept that we are being saved, which technically is the concept of sanctification. And this is where you partner with God. Yep. God does it all to begin with, your justification. He's going to do it all in the end, your glorification. But your sanctification, this moment now while you're here on earth, this side of glory, this is where you put in. This is where you partner with. This is where you work out your salvation. It's where you need to live it out. And that's what's on view here. And that's why we're continually called to strive and persevere. Have you ever noticed that? There's there's a lot of instructions given to Christians in the scripture to really go at this and be serious about this. We're working out our salvation. It's very practical. It's very everyday. Um, 
about a year ago when there was a bunch of us sitting around thinking, okay, let's start a church. What's it going to be like? And we did some brainstorming sessions with our Bibles open. One of the key things that kept coming up from most of the people in that early session, and if you missed that early session, by the way, don't feel like you've missed everything because we're still fleshing things out here. We're still working out who we are. But I want to share with you one of the really key concepts that was on the hearts of people early on, and that is that this Christian life would not be just something that we, that we put on as a performance one day a week or one hour on one day a week, but this Christian life would be something that really is core to who we are and we'd be living it out every day. It'd be a serious, deep, genuine thing for us. That just kept coming up in different versions on the whiteboard. And and so one of the pieces of language that kind of comes to mind when I think about our salvation and who we are as Christians is that it's it's an everyday thing. We're people who are wanting to live our everyday lives following Jesus, working out our salvation. We, we, want to be, we want to be working out our salvation when you're at work. You want to be working out your salvation when you're at home and things are tricky. You want to be working out your salvation when you're hanging out with your neighbours, when you're playing with your hobbies, when you're on holidays, when you're doing the, always, every day, working out our salvation because this is real. And it ought to apply all the time for us. And I've got to say, I love that about the New Testament, particularly Paul's letters. He gets really practical and he gets really every day and he digs into the kind of things that you and I continue to struggle with, like Christians have always struggled with. And that's what I want to look at now in chapter two. And what are some of the instructions that the Christians here are being called to do and not do? Like, what, what do you see there in verse 14? Have a look there with me. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Just pause there for a little minute. Why would Christians need to be told to do everything without grumbling or arguing? It's probably because they are, they're lazy, (laughs) yeah? And they also are human and they are sinful and they are, yep, broken, yep. And they're grumbling and arguing. Sorry, that's what I was kind of fishing for. Like, you've got to be told, that's good. That, that's all what, they're the deeper reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're all over it. But you don't need to be told to stop grumbling and arguing unless it's something you're struggling with. And Christians have always struggled with grumbling. If you think back to God's people in the Old Testament, what was their biggest issue while they wandered in the desert and tried to, tried to trust Yahweh? Grumbling and whinging. I mean, he's right there before them in a cloud, visually present. They can hear him thundering. They've got to stand back from the mountain and they just start grumbling. It's almost like it doesn't matter what God does for his people. We have a tendency to grumble. We have a tendency to whinge. And we have a tendency to argue as well. It's It's not very flattering to hear these things about ourselves. But I think that's what's going on for the Philippians. Paul's got a lot of praise for this community of believers. And he does a lot of encouraging. He takes a lot of joy in them. But they're not a perfect community. Because there is no perfect community this side of heaven. And they're struggling with things. You actually get a little bit of a glimpse of that in chapter 4, don't you, with those two women in church who he calls to actually, can you guys just try and get on, get along? Where are we there? 
Yeah, 4.2. I plead with Euodia and I plead with you Syntyche, or I don't know how you pronounce that, um, to be of the same mind. So this, and, and these are women who have actually contended by Paul's side. There's a mature, grown up women of the gospel, but they're having a barney with each other. And it might be, we don't really know, it might be that the church is kind of taking sides with these two prominent women in the church. You've never seen anything like that happen before in church, have you? So there's, there's things going down even for this, this wonderful community that Paul's got a lot of praise for. And there will be things that go down for us. We will be tempted to grumble when we feel like we're working hard and others aren't working hard, as hard as us. We'll be tempted to argue with people and not do it in a very generous, um, gracious way um, when we disagree with what others are doing. And so we need to receive this instruction, do everything. And by the way, that assumes you're doing something. And, and the focus here is on doing things among your brothers and sisters for the functioning of the church community. Whatever you do among them, do it without grumbling or complaining. Oh, I just think that's hard, isn't it? Like right off the bat, that's, 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 that's a hard one to digest. But this whole section really is, a, is, is about the concept of being humble among each other and serving each other. It's, it's to have a, the mindset of Jesus as we live among each other. Um, chapter 2, we looked at this last week. Look at verse 3 in chapter 2. In your relationships with one another. So the focus is particularly on church community here. Um, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. And then and he goes on to unpack what the mindset of Jesus Christ is. You're willing to lower yourself, humble yourself and live for the progress of others. You live for the good of others and particularly their spiritual Good. So here's, here's, here's what we're being commanded and instructed to do. Live in a humble way towards each other and to be more concerned for the interests of others than your own interests. Stop focusing on yourself and ask first, what does this brother or this sister need? How can I love them and care for them? This is a really basic thing, but it's very difficult. Look at, look at chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, Paul goes on and speaks about Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples of men who did this well. And that's why he's praising them and encouraging them. He's like, you want an example of, of, of people who humble themselves and really pay a big price in order to serve others. He's got a lot to say about Timothy and Epaphroditus. Look what he says in verse 20. Speaking about Timothy, I have no one else like him. It's pretty big, isn't it? I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Isn't that interesting? That even, even the Apostle Paul couldn't get others to join him and have a genuine concern for other Christians. And he says, it's just Timothy, really. I just got this one guy and he has, he, there's no one like him. And here's the unique thing about him. He shows genuine concern for the welfare of others. That's a radical way to live. It's not an easy way to live. And he goes on and he says, look at this, for everyone looks out for their own interests and not those of others. I want to hang on, what does it say? For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? You come across that? Because it almost sounds like he's meant to say, um, everyone looks out for their own interests and not the interests of others, but he doesn't. He says, they don't, most people look out for their own interests and not that of Jesus Christ, which tells you what about the interests of Jesus Christ? That is synonymous for the interests of others. 
So if you want to ask, what's Jesus about? What's he interested in? What's he's focused on? Well, we've just been hearing about it in, in the song that we looked at in chapter 2. Jesus is focused on the welfare of others, the good of others, living for their good. And particularly, not just the general welfare of others, but the good of his brothers and sisters, which is particularly their spiritual welfare. That's Jesus' main interest, is the spiritual welfare of his people. So there you go. Can you see that? I mean, Paul's been talking about it earlier as well. Look at chapter 1, verse 25. He says, um, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. That's what Paul's giving himself to because he sees it as the chief interest of Jesus. He's going to give himself to the other people's progress in the faith and joy in the faith. And as he does that, he's, it's a massive cost to him. Look at verse 17, chapter 2. He says, But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, the way Paul describes his own experience of actually living for the welfare of others, the spiritual welfare of others, he says, I feel like I'm being poured out like a drink offering, which is basically I'm sacrificing myself. That's what a drink offering is. It's actually to give yourself over completely. And second, Paul says, that's how I feel. I feel like I'm pouring myself out for other people's growth in the faith and it's killing me. So you'd expect him to just whinge and complain about that and pull away from it and say, I'm not going to do it anymore. It's not worth it. But there's things that are driving him. And number one, it's because he understands that is the chief interest of Jesus. And number two, it's because it actually brings him joy. Like you read on, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. He's pouring himself out like a drink offering and there's joy and gladness going on for him in that. Now, some of you through your life, you've been Christians for many years and you've served really hard. You've had seasons where you've served really hard, but it hasn't produced rejoice and it hasn't produced gladness for you. It's almost, it's been, almost been the end of you. And these are moments for us to think back and go, well, what was going on for me in my sacrificial service there? What, what may have been missing? And try and process what's going on because Paul's calling us you know, the Lord's calling us here to the kind of lives that are certainly focused on the good of others and pouring yourself out, very costly for the good of others, but there's gladness and rejoicing in the midst of it. That's pretty cool. So what do you think? You know, do you, you hear about this, which really is just a really practical way of pedalling the bike. Sorry, so come back to the bike with me for a minute. There are many things to be working on to keep your Christian life going. This is one key one is how you invest in others and pour yourself out for your brothers and sisters. What do you think about this? How do you think about working out your salvation in this way? Do you find it easy to do? To genuinely live for the good of others? Selfless, other person-centredness. I think what we can do is we can hear these kinds of instructions and commands and we can kind of nod our heads and go, yep, I get it, that's the Christian life. I definitely should be living that way a little more. But am I actually going to do it? And that's where you can have a little wrestle in your heart. Like, seriously, are you going you to step towards this kind of working out your salvation? Because you might be thinking, well, I'm exhausted. Or that sounds hard. Or I'm busy. 
We're all busy. Or I'm tired. Or do I have to? I think there's a resistance in us to living this way and there's a resistance from within and from around us. The resistance from within is because you're broken and you're selfish. It's what sin does. It makes you actually more easily focus on what's good for, or what you think is good for you, which ends up meaning you turn in on yourself and spend most of your time doing things that you think are going to make you happy. There will be a resistance from within you to live like this. Just expect that. So expect some of the reasons or excuses that might come up in your heart that cause you to want to pull back to actually just be from your own sinful heart. Yeah? Have a healthy distrust of your own heart. Yep, You're freed from the slavery of sin, but you still live with the presence of sin. And so sometimes the desires that come out of your heart are going to be quite corrupt and want to pull you away from what God desires. There will be a resistance within and there will be a resistance from without. Like the world that we live in is actually not going to encourage you to live this way. Most of the advertising marketing that will get thrown at you through social media and telly and everywhere you go will usually be trying to get you to buy a product because it's going to be better for you. Yeah, which is ultimately to get you to think about you first and foremost and focus most of your time and energy on making your life better. The way the Bible describes a society that's like that is in verse 15. So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. So we live like they did in a warped and crooked generation that will not encourage you to live selflessly and practice the art of what you might call self-forgetfulness. Yeah? We live in a society that's going to tell us, no, no, just go after everything you want for yourself. And I'll tell you what, if we can live like this, look what's going to happen. He goes on, he says, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Yeah, there's going to be something that's really powerful about a, a community of people that are actually living for other people's interests, which means we'll be a witnessing community and we'll stand out and we'll shine the way the Lord wants us to. It's wonderful. God's got a good design for, for us in this. Now, but I'm going to just kind of pause there and just acknowledge that what we're talking about here is not easy. And I don't know what's going on in your heart and in your mind as you consider this type of life. I want to help you. I want to help me to actually walk towards this kind of life. I want us to be actually practising peddling, you know, and working out our salvation, and particularly in this way, in the way we love and care for one another as brothers and sisters. And I want to try to give you two things that are going to help you tonight. Two things that are going to help you live out your salvation this way. We're going to look at the why and the how. I might pause after the why and see how long I've gone for, but we'll do why and then we'll do how, Okay. The big why of why we should live this way is actually going to be the engine room that fuels or drives this life for you. You you need to know the why. Otherwise, when it gets hard, you'll go, why am I doing this? And if you don't have a clear answer to why you would live this way, you'll pull back from it. So there needs to be a good, clear why that we'd live this way. Now, we get the why in the three verses leading up to chapter 12. The, the verses that are just prior to the section we're in. In fact, you see the start of verse 12 there where it says, therefore, dear friends, whenever you see a therefore in Scripture, you know that what's about to be said is based on just what's been said. So the reasoning why we'd be called to live this way has just been said, and there it is in verse 9, 10, 
and 11, and it's really important that we get this, and it's to do with the worthiness of Jesus, that we would live this way. Look at verse 9, 10, 11. Therefore God exalted him. So I'll just pause there for a minute. This this is a poem about Jesus and what it is. It's speaking about how Jesus came and condescended and became a man, lived a life on your behalf, the life you could never live, goes to the cross, dies a death in your place so you don't have to pay for your sin, and then he rises again from the dead to show the victory over sin. And then what? Well, you get his ascension and his exaltation. And that's what's speaking about here. Look at this, verse 9. Therefore God exalted him, that's Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is the why for, for the lifestyle that we're just unpacking here. It's to do with the glory of the exalted Jesus and how worthy he is of us living this way. And and it's really important to make the connection. See if you can make the connection. Jesus is the one who right now today is exalted. He's enthroned. Jesus is on his throne and he is the Lord of all creation. And he's seated there as the judge. And as he is seated there above all, really, he finds himself in what I would call the central position in the universe. All of the universe is basically gathered around the one who's on the throne and Jesus is there. He's exalted. He's the Lord above all. And because he's in that position, he is worthy. And he's worthy of what? He's worthy of praise and he's worthy of honour and he's worthy of worship and he's worthy of everything and everyone in all of creation, honouring him and bowing down before him, which is why it says there that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is the Lord. Because Jesus is seated at the central position, high and exalted, he's worthy of every living creature creature just bowing before him and worshipping him, not just a few, not just a few like you and I, He's actually worthy of every single human you've ever walked past or known bowing the knee and confessing with the tongue. Now, as, whenever I see images like that, my mind goes to Revelation chapter 4 and 5. We, we won't go there and read it all, but if you've been to chapter 4 and 5, we can go there if you want, chapter 4 and 5 in the book of the Revelation, um, you, you, you get a vision. Yeah? The Apostle John um, sees a picture, a vision of the throne room of God. He gets taken into the throne room of God and what he sees is someone on the throne and it's God. It's, it's, it's the Lord creator God on the throne and around the throne, if you've ever seen the picture before, it's a vision, are these concentric circles of creatures and beings and it's, it's metaphorical and it's symbolic and it's hard to know exactly what all these creatures and beings are but these concentric circles that go out around the throne basically represent every living creature, animal on the earth um, it, it, and every single human that's ever existed and every single heavenly being that's ever existed. E- everyone, everything is crowded around the one who's seated on the throne and they're bowing before him and they're worshipping him and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
And then in chapter 5, the, the vision kind of, John looks again and there's someone else there with God the Father on the throne. And it's a slain lamb. So it's the Son, Jesus, is also there on the throne. So it's God the Father and God the Son in the central position. And, and, then, and then you see it kind of steps back again. It's almost like a Mexican wave of worship. It's like ripples out from the centre. These, these four creatures in the middle bow down and then all the 24 elders bow down and then all the angels and then every living creature bows down and everyone is just worshipping the one who is at the centre. And here's how we need to see Jesus and life now. Because this is not simply a vision of what heaven will be like one day. As John, the apostle, looks into the throne room of God, he catches the reality of the universe today, which is Jesus exalted, enthroned as the Lord of everything and everyone and worthy of all praise and all worship and all service. And if you can see Jesus clearly in that position and you can understand that he's actually deserving of that central position in the universe and worthy of all the worship, then then maybe we can make the connection but kind of thinking, well, he's therefore deserving of that position in my life that central position. And he's also deserving and worthy of all of the worship and honour that I could give him with my life, with praise, with obedience, with service, with everything. And if you can make the connection between, this is the big why. If Jesus really is exalted in that way, then this ought to direct our lives. Our lives ought to be focused on worshipping him and serving him because he's worthy of absolutely every skerrick of what you could offer. Can you make the connection? If that's where Jesus is and that's what he's worthy of, then surely the highest calling you could ever receive for your life and ever live for is to give yourself to the interests of Jesus because that would be giving yourself to the interests of the exalted one who is the Lord of all creation. What better to do with your life? What more to do with your life than to focus it on the one who is the Lord and is worthy? And if we can catch this reality today, it's going to help us pedal. You got me? It's going to help us live out our salvation. It's going to help us give our things to ourselves to things that we don't naturally feel like doing because we see Jesus on the throne. It's going to help us personally bow and confess. And actually, there's more to that verse there, isn't there? Like When he says, so come back to the verse we're focusing on, continue to work out your salvation. What does it say? With fear and trembling. I actually think there's two things. There's two things that cause Paul to want to keep peddling. There's two things that, that can cause us to want to actually keep working out our salvation. It's fear and trembling and rejoicing and joy. It's both those. Now, some of you, when you hear the words fear and trembling, maybe you think, I don't know how that fits into the picture of my relationship with God. But i tell you what, if you just caught a little glimpse of Jesus enthroned above all the universe and every living creature bowing before him, can you catch why reverence is completely appropriate? Can you catch it? And, and that's what fear is, fear and trembling. It's the healthy kind of fear that draws you towards the Lord and makes you want to bow in homage and honour him with all of your days. That's the fear and trembling. 
that we would bow and confess and actually get ourselves in line with the ones who's the Lord. That's going to enable you to do it. And also joy and rejoicing. And you know, get that all the way through Paul's letter here. He's giving himself to what you'd call glad service. He's rejoicing as he lives this way. And he's living for the spiritual welfare of others. We can pour ourselves out like drink offerings too. And we can do it with fear and trembling. And we can do it gladly with rejoicing and joy. And what better to give ourselves to than working out our salvation and peddling in this way. There's the why. I'm going to give you the how, and it's going to be really brief, but before I do, I just want to pause. I've kind of been jumping around this passage a fair bit. I'll just pause for a minute, and I wonder whether you've got a thought or a comment or a question or something that you... Maybe you've been in this passage throughout the week and you really want to share something about this with your brothers and sisters. Let me just pause for a minute and just... Let's, um, let's finish. Bless you guys, that was, that was great. Let's finish by finishing the verse that we started reading there. Or actually, we're going into verse 13. Um, so from continue, look at it there with me. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfil his good purpose. Now, as Dave was saying, that doesn't let us off the hook, meaning God's doing it all so we do nothing. Now we're called to partner with him and take seriously the commands and instructions to actually work out our salvation, keep peddling, which for us in this context means living for the sake of others and giving yourself to genuinely being interested in others' spiritual welfare. But we do it with an understanding that God is the one enabling us to do anything, which is an incredible gift. What enabled you to get here today? Well, it was God who gave you the health and the capacity and the decision and everything. By his spirit, living in you enables you to will and to act. So not just act, but to have the will to do it had the desire to do it. If you've ever had a desire that's for God, it's because he's living in you by his spirit, changing your heart, that your desires would be transformed to be like his and for him. We've got a God who's in us. So what that means is this peddling, this working out our salvation, this giving ourselves to hard work of loving each other, you know, this, this genuinely being interested in, in the interest of others, um, the, the pouring ourselves out is not simply you in your strength. It's not simply that. It's about a God who's strong and in you. you know, like we saw back in chapter one, it's, it's the God who began a good work in you. He's going to bring it to completion. And that God who's in you, we see in Ephesians chapter one, the same mighty power that raised Jesus from the dead is that work in you, enabling you to live this way. So you've got everything you need. And not only does God strengthen you, also sometimes he does give you limits as well. And so I want to be careful whenever we talk about, you know, pouring yourself out and striving to serve Jesus because you need to understand what's on your plate right now. 
because the Lord's given it all to you. And he may have given significant limits to you right now. Some of you are maybe really damaged and broken and needing to recover and you're exhausted. You need to take that into account. Yeah, it's all, it's all a good gift from God. But trust that he's able to strengthen you to actually live and act according to how he intends for you to in this next season. So watch what he gives you. Watch what strength, ability, limits, everything that he puts in your lap and work with that. Work with that, with the vision of Jesus enthroned, you know, exalted, worthy of everything you could ever offer him. Notice what God gives you and live according to how he's strengthening you and equipping you. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us and we thank you even for instructions that we find difficult to follow, like not grumbling and complaining and and like being called to live with genuine concern for the spiritual welfare of others. Lord, we find this difficult in and of ourselves, but we hear that you're at work in us and we want to trust that and expect that you will strengthen us and enable us as well as giving us significant limits at certain times. But Lord, we pray that we would trust you and pedal (laughs) and work out our salvation with everything you give us, with the glorious vision of you exalted and enthroned in our minds. And we trust that you'll take us and you'll use us for your namesake. Amen.